Well, as I said in the adult class, it's a delight uh, to be here with you and to worship with you again and to uh, be privileged to bring the Word of God to you. Before we turn to God's Word and continue our study uh, in this study of the life of Christ, let's once again seek the face of God for His help. Father, as we have just sung, the the gospel is where you reveal to us the realities of, of heaven and hell and the place that Jesus Christ uh, plays in men and women achieving or going to one place or the other. If we're to benefit from your word, Father, we need you to teach us. We need you to guide us. And so deliver me from all mere formality in my speaking this morning. Deliver me from all self-confidence and self-dependence. By your Spirit, come, O God, and work in each of our hearts through the proclamation of the truth of your word. You would use it to change us, to guide us, to comfort us, to convict us. Lord, we, we plead with you. Come. Be here in our midst as you've helped us to sing your praise, as you've helped us to pray. Now help us to hear aright. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're looking at this reality this, of Jesus Christ and his doing the work of an evangelist, his evangelism. And we saw in the adult Bible class that Jesus is not an evangelist. That is, the word evangelist is not used of Jesus Christ anywhere in the Gospels or in the letters. He's not called an evangelist. He fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king. But uh, he was not explicitly described as one who is an evangelist in that particular office. He also, we also read about how he was, his purpose, though, was to evangelize. His purpose was to go forth and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that's the summary, uh, state, summary statements that are made several times in the gospels regarding his ministry. Let me just say that, uh, maybe we could just say that Jesus was not a capital E evangelist. Uh, everybody and others have done the same thing. We say an evangelist, it's just doing the work of an evangelist. But he's not in an office of evangelist. He just is one who does that work. And that, and that, you want to call him an evangelist in that sense, that's fine. My point is that evangelism is not merely for the specialized, for the well-trained, for a particular group of people. Jesus engaged in this work of evangelism in at least three different spheres. We saw that he did it in the sphere of open-air preaching. He did it in his teaching and preaching in the regular work in the, in the synagogues, just with his regular activity as a rabbi. And we saw it also in personal providential conversations. And that's where we spent most of our time. Then in your notes, we're looking now at some suggestive examples of Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. And we began by looking at the passage, one of those passages that is a common passage uh, for, for people to think of when they think of Jesus doing the work of an evangelist, and that's him talking to Nicodemus, because that's where we get that 
glorious summary statement of God's heart in the gospel and, and Christ's work in the gospel that we all know as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that was in the context of Nicodemus coming and asking some very specific uh, religious questions seeking to understand or to uh, know more about Jesus or to confirm more. We don't know if he came in faith or not at that point in time. Uh, at least I, don't, I could not prove one way or the other. But he came and he heard the gospel in that conversation. Turn with me now in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And we'll take up another one of these uh, examples of Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. John chapter 4. Here again, one of those common places where people turn when they want to uh, describe Jesus' work. Here he's speaking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Begin reading at verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well? And drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And she responds, Sir, give me this water. This is a very common conversation in one sense. Jesus uh, speaks to this woman, and it's, pretty, it's, it's rather remarkable that this account follows immediately on uh, after the account with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a, a very notable religious figure uh, among the people of Israel, and now it's a Samaritan woman who is uh, noted for a life of immorality, uh, and yet the two get the, both get conversations with the Savior. Jesus speaks without prejudice and in a very natural way. He just asks her for a drink of water, a very common thing, and he opens up the conversation. But notice how Jesus then uses this normal conversation about water to go to where he, really, where he, where he wants to get her, and that is to speak about the things of God, to speak about the gospel of the kingdom of God. He asks for water. She responds by, you know, well, how are you talking to me? Just noting his, his, his freedom with which he speaks to her. And then he tells her, listen, if, if you really knew who was speaking to you, you would have asked me for water, for living water. Living water, what's that? Well, she is immediately struck by this and would love to have that so she wouldn't have to come to the well. And, uh, and then he highlights her immoral behavior. But notice how he does it. He, he, he says to her, go call your husband. Go call your husband and come back. Now, he doesn't bring out the law and point her to the seventh commandment. 
and say, you immoral woman, you have violated God's law. You're under the wrath of God. He knew that because in his, own, in his own prophetic way, he understood something of where this woman was, and so he challenges her at the point that it's going to bring conviction to her heart, and yet he doesn't do it in a direct way, a very subtle sort of way. Go call your husband. And she uh, brings out very plainly that uh, she doesn't have a husband, and then being the prophet that he is, he explains what her situation really is. And so he then directs her very clearly to the fact that she needs, she has this need, this sin in her life, this reality in her life, which is out of order. Then in verses 20 to 24, of course, the the common question, she now sees he's a prophet, still hasn't gotten what who he really is. She sees him as a prophet, and so she's going to ask him a a prophet's question. Let me ask you some, some religious questions. You're a religious person. You know something about religiosity, and let me ask you this. Where should we worship? Now, let's be, let's be honest. I, I personally don't know whether this is a legitimate question or whether this is smoke. Is she trying to divert from this subject of she's just been uh, made to squirm a little bit because her, her immoral, reality, immoral background has been made known? Is she then trying to divert it to something religious? It may very well be. But Jesus actually answers her question. He didn't do that with Nicodemus. But he does answer her question. He addresses this matter of, well, where should we worship? And he says, not in Jerusalem and not there, but God has a particular kind of worshiper that he's looking for. Those who worship him in spirit and in truth. But then notice as he goes down through this conversation, look with me at verse 29. She asks the question, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, verse 25 He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And he he says to her, I who speak to you am he. She got it because in verse 29 it says, Come see the man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Messiah? Is this not the Christ? And so you see, Jesus takes this very natural conversation, sitting there at the well, talking about water, and in a sense kind of comes with a felt needs gospel, dare I say it. He doesn't say your your felt needs will be satisfied if you come to Christ. But he does say, from this standpoint of her felt need for water, he then builds upon that to a bridge to speaking about matters of greater importance. The thirst of the soul. And then he brings her to see the need of salvation, the need of uh, this. She has a problem with this sin in her, in her life, and then he presents himself to her as the Messiah. Wonderful conversation that he brings this naturally to the gospel. It's clear that, that he got his point across because even those who uh, later come to him say in verse 42 of this same chapter and they were saying to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly now who is he the savior of the world so see he's not just talking in general theological realities he's getting around down to the the basic need the gospel of jesus christ the gospel of the kingdom of god Another example that we could find in John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. John chapter 9, we have that example of the man who is, uh, who is blind and he's 
from birth, and he's healed by Jesus. And, and we could get caught up in the question of the, the glory of God. And it's an important question. Why did he heal him? It was for the glory, why he was sick, because of, he was blind because of the glory of God that he might, might be shown. But then he, he, he heals him, and having healed him, uh, he then is, is brought before the, for the, the leaders in the, in the synagogue, and they kick him out, because he's speaking about this one who healed him. And Jesus seeks him out and finds him. And when he finds him, make sure I got the right passage here. Verses 35 and 38, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? You notice he doesn't go to him and say, listen, what are you going to do with your new site? Have you, have, you, have you decided how you're going to get a job? Have you figured out how you're going to live a life that's actually meaningful in society now? He says, no. He says, he comes to him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answers and says, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus says to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. So here's a very kind deed that has been done. He's given a man sight back. And in response to that need, he then follows it up with saying, but there's something more. You need to understand who it was that healed you, and you need to worship him. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's a prophetic backdrop to this, I believe, as well. Back in Ezekiel chapter 34, we read about false shepherds, and the false shepherds were feeding themselves and abusing the sheep. And one of the things that is said of those false shepherds in Ezekiel chapter 34 is, My flock wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Because under their ministry, they were, they were scattered. And don't we see that here? The, the synagogue rulers, they have no compassion. Over and over again, we see their, their lack of compassion. And they have no compassion. They kick the man out, and off he goes. But what does Jesus do? It's not just sufficient that he then has healed him, and he's done, he moves on. But he actually seeks him out, searches for him like Jehovah, the good shepherd, the true shepherd in Ezekiel 34. Behold, Jehovah says, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for the herd on the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep, and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. You think it was a gloomy day when this Jewish man was kicked out of the synagogue? Cast out, as it were? An outcast among the religious people? Well, sure, it was a gloomy day, but Jesus comes to cast that gloom away by bringing him to see the Messiah has come. The Savior has come. And so in doing good, he seeks this man and, and brings him face to face with his true reality of who he is as the Messiah, as the Savior. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. And again, my point is that my purpose isn't to, to expound each and every one of these passages, or we would be here all day, but just to try to highlight some of these things in these conversations and in these events that Jesus has with these different people, how he brings the gospel to them. John chapter, excuse me, uh, Matthew chapter 11. Now in Matthew chapter 11, we, we have Jesus more in, a, in an open air setting of sorts. He, he's talking uh, to, to the people. We could start 
really with the beginning of the chapter, and again, this is what I did as I read through the entire book of Matthew and found all these different places, right up at the beginning where there's the questions about John the Baptist and who he is and who is to follow after him. And he tells John, John has some doubts. Are you the one? The same one who had said, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John chapter 1 is now saying, are you the one? And what does Jesus do? He says, let me tell you what the Old Testament says. Let me push you back to the Scriptures and what the Scriptures say of me. And it's validated by my behavior. Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. And then he gives a tribute to him and points to the fact that he came before him, that Jesus is the greater, but even in giving a tribute to John, he points to himself. But then beginning at verse 20 in particular, we read of of these woes that he pronounces uh, upon uh, the cities around him. And I'm indebted here to a, a chapter in a book by Stuart Olliott called Ministering Like the Master, in which he describes how Jesus addresses the gospel to these people in this, uh, in this setting. Let me just set the setting, too. Uh, this, this became a very real uh, passage to me a number of years ago. One of the members of our church, who comes from a hyper-Calvinistic background, uh, had a sister uh, who was, uh, had muscular dystrophy and was in, in the hospital uh, basically uh, dying. And the, this gospel, a gospel was preached from this passage uh, by Pastor Bill Hughes at our pastor's conference. And so it had been pr- done previously. So this woman took this tape of this message, and I think it actually was a tape, because you know, what a time it took place, but took his and played it for her sister in the hospital. And her sister, who could not talk, was, was tears coming down her eyes as she listened to this. And she asked her, because she could still blink, she says, are you trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from your sins? And she said, yes. And with her, you know, blinked with her eyes, yes, this is what I believe. And, and my our friend believes that she actually did, was saved there in, in the hospital on her deathbed, listening to this message. And so because of that, when the funeral happened, I got the privilege of reading this passage at the funeral after another man preached not a, whole, not a gospel, but a half gospel, which is a, which is a whole error. Uh, he only presented the bad part. And then I got to read this passage. Right? So that's the setting. So now you got that in your mind. This is why this passage is so real to me. And I hope you'll understand something of that as we work our way through it. And so as we come to this passage, notice with me that, Je- that according, as, a, as Stuart Elliott says, Jesus rebukes the unbeliever or points the finger. He points the finger at cities that are right around them. And he shows himself to be sovereign over the judgment and over the spread of the gospel. He says, if these things which had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. God's sovereignty extends to all possibilities. And he says, I know what could have happened should this have happened. But it didn't happen. He chose that it shouldn't happen. And so they did not repent. But you didn't repent. And you, heard, you saw these miracles. And he goes to Capernaum and says uh, that if these things had been done in them, the miracles, uh, excuse me, in Chorazon and, and Bethsaida, if these things had been done, excuse me, Capernaum, yes. And Capernaum, will you be exalted above the heaven? Will you descend to Hades and miracles? If these miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, they would have remained to this day. But it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the judgment than for you. And he brings this reality of a a sovereign God who is sovereign over judgment. 
Now he points the finger at them, makes it very plain that there are groups of people who have rejected the gospel and they are in a very bad way. Because they have rejected Christ's words, because they have rejected the testimony of Christ, they are under the judgment of God. Jesus points the finger toward the day of judgment. But Jesus also then prays, verses 25 to 27. As Stuart Ollie said, not only do you point the finger, but you should bend your knee. And so he's praying. And he prays, at this time Jesus said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son reveals him. And everybody in that hyper-Calvinistic environment at that funeral was all with me as I talked about the sovereignty of God in judgment upon the earth and the sovereignty of God in dispensing his salvation. And, and if, they could, if they did say amen, they would have said amen. They would have said a loud amen at that point. But Dutch people are kind of like Presbyterians. They don't say much. So there wasn't a lot that was said, so, but, but they, so they sat there. But then I went on, because notice what Jesus does next. Not only does he bow the knee before a sovereign God and praise him, he then goes on and says, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so I said all these things about the sovereignty of God, and I said, and then Jesus said, come unto me. And this woman heard this message, and she came, and you can too. And as I said at the pastor's conference, I'll say it here, if looks could kill, I wouldn't be here to preach. <laughs> because, you see, they could not say that. But Jesus could. Jesus could hold this whole doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He can bend his knee before a sovereign God and praise him for his sovereignty and yet at the same time then open his arms and say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he gives this open, free offer of Jesus Christ. And he says, I am, I am a, a Savior who is gentle and lowly, compassionate, in other words, it's not difficult to come to me. I'm not sitting on some glorious throne that you have to crawl up. Or, he says, I'm right here in front of you. Come unto me. Pointing, praying, inviting. This is Matthew chapter 11. But then there's another uh, opportunity that Jesus had for the gospel, and it's found in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. We don't generally think of this as a, a call to the gospel, but I believe it is accurate to say that it is. In Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and, and he calls them hypocrites. He highlights some of their hypocrisy. He highlights their self-importance. And then he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides who say, whosoever swears by the sanctuary. You see, he's, he's very vehement in, in highlighting their 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 
formality and their, and their what's the word I want? Their, their sinfulness in, in holding off others by setting up these legalistic standards that nobody could keep and that they can't keep. But I think there's more here than just highlighting for us what, how ugly sin looks in religious formalism. This is a call to repent. This is a call to them to say, do you see this? When the Savior says unto you, woe unto you. It's meant to, to humble you, to say, yes, woe is me. What must I do? Pastor Cook preached um, on the Lord's Day before our pastor's conference from Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, and, and he didn't know that this was in my notes, this passage, but then he highlighted this passage in his sermon. Uh, his sermon, Romans 12, 9, says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil. And clearly Jesus is expressing an ab- abhorrence toward evil in this particular passage. And yet he's doing so in a way that he's seeking to draw people to see the sin that they're in, that they might turn from their hypocrite, hypocritical ways and their formalism. You see, that's, that, isn't that, that is wonderful news. Right? That is good news. There is salvation for hypocrites. There is salvation for the formalist. It's not just for the overtly wicked out there. It's for those who think themselves safe and have all kinds of rules and regulations by which they're seeking to live. He says there's a gospel even for those kinds of hypocrites and those who are formalistic in all their rules. William Blakey, uh, commenting on this passage, said this, We must remember his remarkable insight into the human heart, that is Jesus. A circumstance which makes his example applicable to us in but a limited degree, still the impression remains on our minds that there must be cases which even for us, the proper mode of dealing with sin is that of a stern and crushing rebuke. One purpose of this tone, Blakey goes on to say, one purpose of this tone of sharp rebuke in the case of the unimpressed hearers, as in the case of godless formalists, was doubtless to startle them and to give them a last chance, as it were, of escaping the consequences of their guilt. In his severest reprimands, we may note an undertone of compassion, the feeling that burst forth so as to overpower him when he foretold the doom of Jerusalem. Jerusalem that stoned the prophets and killed them that were sent to her. And then Blakey Blakey goes on to say, the only way to do them real good was to shell them, as it were, out of their position. To hurl woe woe against them if perchance, if possibly, they might be terrified into belief in a righteous judge and seeing their condition begin to ask, What must we do to be saved? This is the faithful message that could be summarized by Matthew and Mark as proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And sometimes that gospel of the kingdom of God comes with woes, comes with the big shells from the big guns to blast out the 
one who is sitting in his bunker of sin and has built his shell over him to keep himself safe, to hide from the Gospel. And God says, no, I want to even go after those and I've got a way that the Gospel hits them. And Blakey then summarizes by saying, surely we may gather from this that no ministry can be faithful which does not solemnly reprove and warn all who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. We must not be afraid to tell them what Christ declared, that the men of Nineveh will rise up on the judgment against them and condemn them. Our warnings delivered in the right spirit, that is not delivered out of a a hateful display or a hateful spirit, but done out of a, a loving spirit with a direct approach, our warnings delivered in the right spirit may be the means of startling them into repentance. Anyway, we shall dispel the delusion that the death of Jesus Christ justifies the indifference to real the real nature of sin. Our Lord left no doubt what he thought of sin. Woe unto you, scribes, hypocrites, Pharisees. So sometimes the gospel comes in theological discussion. John chapter 3. Sometimes it comes in a very practical, normal conversation with somebody about natural realities that lead to greater realities. Natural needs, thirst, that lead to greater realities, the thirst of the soul. Sometimes they come in in contexts of of religious uh, formalism that needs to be addressed. Sometimes it needs to be addressed even very pointedly. But then there's one more category of ways in which Jesus spoke the gospel of the kingdom of God, and it's with straightforward comfort. Sometimes the gospel needs to come with just straightforward comfort. What did he say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. What a comforting word that he heard. Or how about the sinful woman that came to him caught in, the, in, in adultery? He says, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Or how about the thief on the cross? He didn't say to the thief on the cross, you know, you say you believe in me, but I want to see real repentance. And until I see it and I know that you've really repented and you've seen your sin for what it really is, I'm not going to... No. He doesn't go and say, do you understand what all the Scriptures say about who I am and I came from heaven? And he says, no. He says, this day you'll be with me in paradise. What What a comforting word to a dying man. A gospel word. This day you will be with me in paradise. Sometimes speaking with very sinners who've had very difficult lives. When I preached this message, I'd had some fellowship with a man who, whose children were drug addicts and died with their addictions still very much attached to them, and yet he believes they were two believers just wrestling with remaining sin. Hardened sinners that have gotten so far, have gone so long in their sin that they're scarred and they're marred and 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 it may even be hard to see them as, as still truly human. They've been so scarred by some of these things, if you know what I mean. Blakey says, 
about such people, he says, it has been strongly felt that the first step towards restoration must be to inspire them with faith in the reality of the possibility of recovery. Now, they may not recover in this life from all of their sin patterns. But isn't it wonderful to be able to come to somebody who's so marred and say, there's hope for you. It's found in Jesus Christ who can break the bonds of sin, who will deliver you from the guilt of sin, who will make you acceptable to God so that on the last day when you stand before him, he won't look at all of those sins. He will look at the righteousness of Christ that cleanses you from all those sins. Isn't it a wonderful gospel to be able to come to people and say there's hope? You live in a hopeless world with hopeless circumstances and there is a God of hope who comes to you and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not you might be saved. You will be saved in a hopeless world where families are fractured and the world is at hating, is hateful and hates one another and it comes and says, you can be adopted into the family of God and have a heavenly father who loves you and deals with you like a true father would. This is the gospel. So sometimes it comes with just straightforward comfort. So that brings me then to my final applications. We've looked at Jesus doing the work of an evangelist. We've looked at him being an evangelist with a little E, if you will. The, this one who is going forth, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And here's my final applications. First of all, develop a mindset that sees people as God sees them, both needy and valuable. Needy and valuable. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Carlson. Now you've been sucked into this new world order, haven't you? That everybody's valuable regardless of their sinful lifestyle. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. The world can use that language the way they want it, but we need to use it as a biblical, in a biblical framework. If I see them as those who are needy, I'm going to come to them with compassion. I'm going to come to them as men who are in bondage, who are blind, who are beleaguered, who are, and I'm going to weep over them at times. The gospel that I come to is going to be, brethren, we need to have a gospel that leads us to weep over the state of the souls of men that are before us. And it doesn't matter whether it's somebody you meet on the street or whether it's somebody who dwells in your house. It's a matter of having compassion. It's a matter of recognizing we were once in bondage and we've been set free. We were once blind, but we've been made to see. And we need to develop a mindset which sees them as needy and valuable, so come with the conviction that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. It's not just a, a kind of nice old salve we put on. It's power. It's God's power for the salvation of sinners. Delivering them from the wrath of God. Delivering them from the guilt which binds them, which holds them. And even to someday delivering them from all of the vestiges of that sin. We need to see the value of the human soul like Jesus did. Remember the words recorded in Mark 8. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory of his Father and his holy angels. But did you hear that? 
What does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? The soul is more valuable than the whole world. And people, brethren, people are losing their souls, not for the whole world, but just for little bits of the world. And the gospel of kingdom says, no, you don't have to live for this world. There's a greater kingdom you can be a part of. A kingdom which is righteous and well-ordered and, and has the best of, of leaders, a good and gracious leader named Jesus. And we can come to them and say, they're valuable. They're made in the image of God. We need to plead with God that through the gospel, through Jesus Christ coming, they would be reformed in the right sense. They would be transformed into the image of God. Remade in the image of God, as Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 say. Jesus was not satisfied with correcting Nicodemus' theology or resolving the Samaritan woman's immoral marital issues. Jesus was not satisfied with helping the paralytic or the blind man get good jobs and be better parts of society. He wasn't there for Zacchaeus just to get him to be more socially acceptable and stop stealing from people, his own, his own people, the Jews. That wasn't what Jesus was satisfied with. And we must never be satisfied with that. Brethren, when you're training your children, we cannot be satisfied with just making them nice little moral beings with good jobs. We need to be those who are dealing with our children and saying, wait a minute, your never-dying soul is at stake. Now, I've got four grandchildren, and grandchildren are the cutest things in the whole world. Now, yeah, the kids were good too. But, you know, the fact of the matter is they're just wonderful, and I love them, and I just want to hug them, but at the same time I see they're dead in their trespasses and sins until they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to hear that from their grandfather. In natural, compassionate, pleasant though sometimes rather straight ways when sin shows itself. We must never be satisfied with getting people well-ordered lives, orderly marriages, and families, and young men who are in legitimate careers. Always remember the eternal consequences to where they stand with Jesus. So develop the mindset that sees people as God sees them, needy and valuable. Secondly, study people carefully and know the gospel thoroughly. Study people carefully. You know, that's one of the things about going through the gospels. You just see that Jesus dealt with different people in different ways, didn't he? When he saw somebody that was religious but kind of seeking, he said, okay, I've got a man sitting here, I'll talk to him. When he saw a woman who was, who was needy and there at the well, he said, well, I'll talk to her and bring her along. When he saw... Pharisees that were hypocrites in front of him, he lobbed those big gospel woes upon them. He has a rich young ruler in front of him who knows the law, and he says, keep the law. Notice he didn't come with the law at the beginning of every single one of his gospel presentations because he knew the people were in front of him. We, we need to think, is the person in front of me stubbornly resisting the gospel? Are they religious unbelievers? Muslims, Jews, theological liberals? Are they worldlings who know nothing that to bring in a Bible verse to them is like reading something off of a bubblegum wrapper? We need to explain things. We need to give them words that they understand. We need to come to them. What are the people that are in front of me? Are they sincerely seeking? Or are they utterly confused? 
Have they imbibed some false doctrine that needs to be uh, eradicated first? Are they hypocrites and formalists? Who is in front of me? We need to study people. Brother, we need to study people. No two people are alike. And then we need to know the gospel thoroughly. So wherever that person is, I can begin with the gospel presentation that meets them where they are. Do you notice that Jesus didn't always start at the same place? With the Pharisees, he says, woe unto you. He highlights their sin. With the woman at the well, he starts with, you know, if you knew who I was. With the man hanging on the cross, he says, you got it. This day you'll be with me. We need to know the gospel thoroughly, where I, where I could be in, where to begin, and how to get to Christ. Because obviously, in every situation, it comes to Christ. Now, it's Christ as revealed in the Word, and so don't be afraid of bringing the Word to people. Because that's the, that's the gospel. That's where the truth is found. And so we can bring that to them. And we don't need to be worried. But we need to, be able to, go, the, we need to know the gospel backwards and forwards so that we can begin anywhere with whatever person is in front of us and then bring them to the gospel. So in the words of the Apostle Paul, our words need to be seasoned, as it were, with salt. So that wherever I'm, wherever I'm eating, if you will, or whatever meal I'm serving up, I can throw that salt in there. Or as I said to the pastors, we need to know whether I should woo them or woe them. Do I need to proclaim comfort to them or do I need to bring condemnation? Should we begin with the convincing power of the law or the sweet comforts of God's promises? Fill your hearts, brethren, with the gospel. Fill your minds with the gospel from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. Know the gospel from beginning to end. If you've got a Muslim in front of you, can you bring the gospel to them from Moses and Abraham? If you have a Jew in front of you, can you bring the gospel to them from Isaiah 53 or some other passage that they will believe? If you've got a theological liberal, can you show them that Jesus came to show the truth and he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. So that you can say, wait a minute, you think truth is kind of amorphous. Here's the truth. It's the truth. Can you come along somebody who's, who's wounded and broken and twisted by this world? And can you come along and deal with the lies that they've embraced and appropriately comfort and bring them to a gracious and wide-open-armed Savior? The next application is beware of choosing any one example as the paradigm for all evangelistic conversations. I don't know how many times the woman at the well, here's the way. And then they don't really get what he says because they get the law in there first. And Jesus didn't bring the law to her first. But, you know, it's any one of them, you can. The Samaritan woman at the well, you're going to start with her felt needs. Nicodemus, you're going to start with theology. Uh, the rich young ruler, you're going to start with the law. If you watch any open-air preachers, or many open-air preachers on, online, what you find is they have the same old techni technique. It's inveighing against sin. 
And they're all standing up on the wall just with these loud voices condemning hypocrites, condemning homosexuals, condemning the immoral. And they're condemned, condemning, condemning. And then, as I've watched a number of these, then I watched Jeremy Walker, Pastor Walker, in his open-air preaching, he preached on friendship. And it was so sweet. You know, everybody wants friends. And he just came out with this, this gospel message, starting with friendship, and it led to the friend of sinners, Jesus Christ. You see, he knew his gospel. He knew where he was going. But he could deal with something in a way that, that warmed people's hearts. There's no one example that it can be the one paradigm. And then beware of thinking that there is only one real method of doing evangelism. Beware of thinking that there is only one real method for doing evangelism. And here again, open-air preachers. Now, I'm not against preaching out in the open air because we have men who do what we call at our church sidewalk evangelism. I said, don't do street evangelism, you get hit by cars. Stand on the sidewalk and preach. And so they do sidewalk evangelism and they preach from the sidewalk to anybody that goes by and they preach to the cars that are going by even if the windows are down. I'm not against open-air preaching, but some open-air preachers go so far as to say, every time God's done a move in in history where there's been a real revival, it's been through open-air preaching. Well, there's always been some of those, but the fact of the matter is that's not the one means that that Jesus used. So looking at Jesus, he was engaged in open-air preaching, but he was also engaged in teaching in regular settings in the synagogue. He was there, uh, you know, interacting with people. People say, well, if we're not knocking on doors, we're not doing evangelism. If we're not handing out tracts to everybody that we meet at the gas station and the grocery store, we're not doing evangelism. Again, Jesus wasn't doing any of those things. He didn't see any tents, no tracts. He was just meeting people where they are, preached in the open air, preached in the synagogues, preached to his family, There were two open-air preachers who came to our church a number of years ago. They're still with us. They're godly men. And when they came in, they were zealous. Man, they were on fire, and they were talking about, you've got to get people out on the streets down there in Newark and preach the gospel to all those needy people. And, you know, and I said, okay, that's really good. They were, man, they were on fire. And I said, you know, I know this zealous woman. She gets sinners every single day and make sure she gets the gospel to them in their particular circumstances, and she's diligent about it, and she's creative about it, and they're like, whoa, who is this woman? I said, that's my wife with my kids. She's no less an evangelist than these guys on the streets with their open-air preaching. And you ladies who are, who are ra- rearing children, or you, young, you, men, you older men and women, we're all getting a little older, right? Who have, great, have grandchildren, maybe some of you have great-grandchildren, but grandchildren says, you know, this is, a, this is a, an evangelistic field. Evangelism isn't just out there in Camden. Evangelism is, is, takes place in, in Cranberry with the wealthy, and it takes place in Montville with the wealthy, and it takes place in Newark with the poor, and it takes place in your home with your visitors, in your office place with your visitors, with providential, personal conversations. So beware of thinking that there's only one real method for doing evangelism. And then beware of falling into predictable patterns of proclamation. Yes, I went with the P's there. Predictable pattern of proclamation. You know, it's always got to be the Roman's road. That's a great tool, but it's not the only way to preach the gospel. 
Study the Gospels with the eyeglasses. Take out your, your Bible sometimes. Just read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with this Gospel. How was he speaking to people the Gospel? How did he sneak it in here? How did he put it in there? How did he address them? And so that we can be varied. And then where you hear others emulate how they do it. We just recently had a preaching clinic uh, at, at Trinity. And one of the men asked this wonderful question. He said this, is it nothing to you that Jesus left heaven and came down to earth? Is it nothing to you? And he kept asking all these questions, gospel questions. Is it nothing to you? Does it mean nothing to you? And what, a, what a wonderful question to get them to start. What do I value? And would I value one who would lay down his life for sinners? Sometimes you preach up front. Sometimes you put it at the end. Sometimes you put it in the middle. Be engaged with your family or with specific teaching and that you have. And then I would say, sixth, beware of hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. Again, Blakey says this, men that have heaven and hell forever on their lips are not always men whose hearts tremble at the awfulness of the difference. You can say the words so much that they don't mean much at all. Do you value the gospel? Do you really value what Christ has done for you? And then, those are all my warnings, then beware of the truth, or excuse me, not beware, remember the truth of God's sovereignty. Remember the truth of God's sovereignty. We don't need to be afraid of using, speaking of the sovereignty of God in our evangelism. Now, we don't necessarily have to throw it in every time. You can't believe until God's opened your eyes. We don't have to do that every time we preach the gospel either. Well, we don't need to be afraid of that. My brother-in-law was saved when my, my sister said to him, you know, God is sovereign and, and you really can't believe until he gives you new life. And he said, what? What's this? Oh, she's like, oh, did I say that? So, oh, I messed it up and she was backtracking. No, that's what drew him. That's what got him interested. What? God saves people and he's got to do the work? i got to hear about this. Jesus wasn't afraid. Don't let your belief in God's sovereignty hinder you from preaching the gospel and calling men to Christ, just like it didn't hinder Jesus. And don't feel that you need to hide it when you're preaching the gospel and calling men to believe. They must be born. Again, that's not a command, that's a fact. They must, or they will not come. And then finally, validate your proclamation by your life. Validate your proclamation by your life. Live a life of holiness. Be one of those vessels that is fit for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Be like David, who recognized that he, first of all, had to have a clean heart and renewed spirit and be in the very presence of the Holy Spirit and have the joy of his salvation restored because then, he says, he will speak to transgressors and sinners will be converted to you. We need to have a holy life to validate the message that we're going to bring. Because if our life doesn't back it up, then we just, we're just hypocrites. And we need to have love, as I said. Validate it with a life of love. One of the greatest tools, one of the wonder, well, should I say, well, one of the tools that God gives us for evangelism is loving one another. 
Isn't that what Jesus said? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And how is that love to be defined? Loving one another as I have loved you. And so we're showing forth the love of Jesus as we, as we get around. Everybody's about community these days. And so show them what a true community looks like and then show them it's the love of Christ. It's what Christ has done for us and in us that makes us love one another and love you the way we do. What a great evangelistic tool. And one of the men in our church years ago said to me, I, he was really down on us because we weren't doing enough outreach. And I said, do you have any friends in the church? He said, no, no, no friends in the church. He said, shame on you. You're missing out on one of the central ways that we, we as a body minister to the world and witness to the world, our love for one another. And then a life of kindness, a life marked by doing good deeds. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is what uh, Blakey calls a life of grace. Jesus lived grace. His whole life was a sermon of grace. The tenderness of his spirit, the readiness of his sympathy, the cordiality of his manner, the frankness and freeness of his cures, the fervor of his invitations, the heavenliness of his life were all exhibitions of divine love and were thus the means of rekindling hope where its lamp had long been extinguished and nothing remained but dark despair. That's why this woman could come up to him and say, I've just got to touch his, his garment. And another one could come in and pour tears over his feet and pour kisses upon his feet and pour ointment upon his feet. Why? Because he was so wide open to people. A life of grace. And then finally, may it never be, but I wonder, could it possibly be that we are not seeing sinners being converted to God because our lives do not validate our message. As Pastor Martin used to say, a life without the lip is a mystery. So you do good and you do good and you do good, but you don't say to anybody why you're doing good. This is part of the problem of the, the neo-orthodoxy and this, some of this new evangelism activity. We just Well, we'll just feed the poor and we'll build them houses and, and we'll clothe them, and, but you don't say anything. Life without lip is just a mystery. But the lips without the life is hypocrisy. And so we need deeds and declarations. Maybe you've seen the slogan. It's on certain t-shirts. I was just recently watching a, a, a sermon by Ian Duguid. I had no idea what it was about. Had nothing. It just, and it just dropped right in here. He, he said, how many of you have seen or heard the statement, preach the gospel at all times, and where necessary, use words. He said, maybe you've seen that on a t-shirt. And this is what he said to the seminary students in front of him. Burn it! Why? Because without the words, there's no gospel. The gospel has to be proclaimed. The gospel has to be spoken. It has to come. Yes, do good deeds. But use words always. <laughs> Get those words in there that they might hear and know the truth. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the Savior? If you do, what a glorious reality you have to share with the world. And if you don't, have you seen something of just how wonderful it is 
There's a, there's a Savior. There is a God in heaven who took to himself a human form, came and lived among his own creatures, let his creatures and even directed them in the sense of letting them kill him so that he could die for the sins of others. And he says to you, believe me, I came for sinners. I came that I might save sinners and bring them to heaven with me in the glory of my eternal kingdom. Part of my family, cleansed of all your sins in a world where there be no strife, but you must admit that you're a sinner, that you're a criminal before God. Repent of those sins and believe on me. Come to me. I am meek and lowly. My arms are open. Come to me, Jesus says. And you can be saved. You can be delivered from that guilt which haunts you. You know that guilt that you keep trying to suppress when you know you did something you shouldn't. You clicked on something you shouldn't. You went somewhere you weren't supposed to. You said something that you weren't supposed to say. You know those sins. Things that nobody else may know about. Or only your friends and you snicker about. But you know deep down inside there's, there's this gnawing conviction. Your conscience is telling you, I shouldn't have done that. I know, there's a, I know that I'm going to have to give account for that one day. And what your conscience is telling you is that there's a great day of, in heaven in which you will stand before the bar of God, before the court of God, and God will look down and see every one of those things if they're not paid for. And you can't pay for them by yourself. You haven't got enough goodness or money to do it. But Jesus Christ came into the world and said, here's all that you need, all the righteousness you need to be accepted by God. Trust me. Come to me. And know that you've been forgiven. Brethren, evangelistic events are good. But I would argue that gospel-permeated hearts overflowing in gospel-salted mouths, Colossians 3, and displayed or manifested or validated by grace-filled lives are more Christ-like and are thus better. For they have the capacity of turning every situation and every conversation into a gospel event. May God help us to be faithful evangelists. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we plead with you that you would forgive us for our many weaknesses and our many sins. And that you would help us. Help us to grow to be more and more like Jesus. Use these words from the gospels to guide and direct your people to worship you and to serve you as evangelists. In Jesus' name, amen.